This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning and happy new year. Apple computers used to have a logo around the end of the 1990s that said, think different. And it caught on. They struck a chord with society. For we have a cultural affinity today in the Western world in particular to value change over tradition. So when they say think different, it struck a chord with us. We put merit in something that is new, as opposed to what is old. And if when we're hearing something, if we've heard it previously, we consider it to be a waste of time and meaningless. Youth conferences in the Adventist church sometimes are affected by this mindset where committees will spend hours literally thinking up a theme for the youth conference that is new, that is different, that is catchy, that is memorable, because we value what's new over what's old. I'd like to congratulate GYC this year on a great theme, amen? And I pray that myself and the other speakers here in, in the workshop are able to do justice to this theme. You see, it is not a new thought. It takes us back to the heart of Christianity 2,000 years ago, the event that changed the universe and the event for which history evolves at the cross. You see, today as Laodiceans, we have a problem as Laodicea. The Adventist church as Laodicea, we have a problem where we have an endless pursuit of knowledge. In fact, Laodicea doesn't necessarily need more knowledge, but they want more knowledge. We want to know something new. We want to know something fresh. How many times have you been in a prayer meeting or in a Bible study, and the person kneeling down, they said, Lord, teach us something new from your Word. We want to hear something fresh, something different, something that we have not heard before. The problem with us as Laodicea is we want knowledge. Some of us have downloaded 10 gigabytes worth of sermons onto our mobile phone. Some of us have got our favorite sermons, and we've heard them over and over so many times, we can recite them word for word. We want something fresh. We want something new. I was talking to a young man in England one time. He came to an evangelistic campaign that I was doing, and he came all the way through, did not get baptized. Two years later, I met him at a youth event, and I was talking to him about his walk with the Lord. And he said, yeah, you know, da -da 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 -da, things are going well. And then he said something to me. He told me the certain Bible prophecies that he was studying. And he said something to me. He said, after he told me what he was studying, he said, yeah, I'm at that level now. He said, I'm studying these things, and I'm at that level now. In other words, what he was saying was, I'm not dealing with the Psalms anymore. I'm not dealing with the Proverbs anymore. I've gone past the Gospels. I'm at this level now. You see, sometimes that's the way we think. We've got to graduate from the easy stuff and get to the deep stuff, and then we really are a mature Christian. 
The problem with us as Adventists is when we think about the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all too often we say, yeah, I've read that already. The cross, yeah, I, I check, I've already heard a sermon on the cross. I read the last 10 chapters of Desire of Ages. Yes, I know that. I know that. I've heard it before. I've seen it already. It's time for me to move on in my Christian experience. Well, you see, this weekend, there is no moving on. Amen? In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 52, the Bible says that every scribe that is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a man in the, that is a householder which brought forth from the treasure things new and things that are old. You see, this weekend, long weekend, we are discussing an old theme, but I pray for myself and for yourself that we're able to pull new things out of the old theme. Amen? That what is old will become new, what is old may become fresh, and that though it may be an old theme at the cross, we may gain a new experience by encountering Jesus Christ. Whilst as an Adventist, you may be familiar with the cross, you may have heard sermons on the cross, you may be familiar with what happens around it, you may be familiar with the Ellen White quotation, we need to spend a thoughtful hour each day in silent meditation on the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. You may remember all of that, but I pray here at this GYC, through the course of what we discuss together, that we may not just know, know something new about the cross, but that we may come to the foot of the cross. Let's bow our heads as we start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, truly it is an honor to open your word. As you spend the next few moments in the pages of Scripture, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Teach us, Lord, today from your word. I pray, Lord, that the experience that you went through on the cross we may see in a vividness today that we can apply to our own personal lives. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me at this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you go to the west coast of San Francisco, there is a bridge there called the Golden Gate Bridge. If you go to the east coast, as you go up I-95 and you head towards New York City, there is another bridge there called the George Washington Bridge. Won't say amen too quick. For the problem with both of those bridges is that when you cross those bridges, you have to pay money before you go over the bridge. In fact, as you're driving to the bridge, you'll see a sign up there that will say, last exit before what? Last exit before tolls. Now, every time that I approach a bridge like that or a tunnel, and you see that sign, last exit before toll, I don't know what it is. But this is what happens in my mind. Even though I know I'm driving over the bridge, even though I know I'm going on to my destination that may be one, two, or three hours away, every time the thought comes into my head, shall I get off the motorway before I have to pay a toll? You see, when you think about this, Gethsemane represented to Jesus the last chance he had to get off the road before he got to Calvary. Gethsemane represented the last opportunity that Jesus had, the last chance to get off that road. It was the last time 
in his earthly ministry that Jesus had a chance to get off before he had to pay the price. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read one or two verses as they relate to the closing scenes of Christ's life. Matthew chapter 26. Gethsemane. The name or the word Gethsemane, it means oil press. It was the name of an olive yard that sat at the foot of the Mount of Olives, if you are privileged to go to Israel today, if you would count it such, you can go to where they say Gethsemane was. There are eight olive trees there in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that they may take you to. But the Orthodox Church says, no, that's not the Garden of Gethsemane. They have one across the road, and they say, that's the Garden of Gethsemane. But if you talk to certain Bible scholars, they will say, none of them are the Garden of Gethsemane. It was probably several hundred yards away. Be that as it may, Gethsemane. This is where Jesus came oftentimes to pray, we're told, and we're told that in Gethsemane, he took all his disciples there to the Garden of Gethsemane. He told some of them to wait there, and then he took his three favored disciples, and he took them a little bit further, and he said, you wait here. And then he went a little bit further from them, not out of eyesight, but he laid there on the ground, and there he started to pray to his heavenly Father. And in Matthew 26 and verse 39, the Bible says, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now what I want to do, we're going to take this verse and look through it step by step. He starts off, and the Bible says he went a little bit further, but the words of Jesus in red, let's focus on these. The Bible says, Oh, my Father. Now, the word, Oh, Father, to me, that signifies closeness in a relationship. Today, you would say that as a term of endearment. If my wife said to me, Oh, Adam, and then she went on to say something else, it would probably mean that I was in her good books at that time. Amen? Oh, Father. Jesus is close with his Father, and the phrase signifies such. It goes on and it says, if it be what? Possible. So he's asking this question. He says, if it is possible, is there any way, is there any possibility about what I'm about to ask? See, Jesus, when he came to this point, he was looking at death. He was looking at the cross straight in front of him. And as he took one look at it, he said, Father, is it possible? Is there any way? Is there any way around this? It was, it's almost like a rhetorical question because Jesus knew that when he came down to earth, he was going to have to die on the cross. But as he comes to the cross and sees it in front of him, he says, is it possible? Is there any other way? I was reading a story about a young man that was hiking in the mountains and he, had, he was hiking in the mountains and a boulder fell on him. And as the boulder fell on him, it almost hit him on the body, but he managed to move his body out just in time that the boulder only hit his arm. The problem was the boulder was 800 pounds, and it stopped on his arm and crushed his arm. He's there in the mountains in a canyon. No one knows he's there, and he's there, and he tries initially to push against the boulder and get it off him. Ridiculous, it's 800 pounds. He realizes he needs to save his energy for something more intelligent. 
And later on that day or the next day, he gets his ropes because he was a climber. I'm not exactly what he did or how he did it, but he tried to make a hoist around the rock so he could pull it and, and, and dislodge it. Didn't work. Plan failed. Next plan, he pulls a knife out his pocket and he starts to stab away at the rock as if he can dig a tunnel in the rock and pull his arm out. Plan doesn't work. Knife is blunt. Next thing he tries to do, he gets the knife. Now, you, want it, you need to get out the canyon, otherwise he's going to die. He gets the knife and he tries to cut his arm. The knife was so blunt, it wouldn't even puncture the skin. He waited another day. Now on six, day six, he's been in the canyon for six days. He's going to starve to death soon. He's going to die of dehydration soon, but he needs to get out. What can he do to save his life? He takes the terrible decision. His name was Aaron Calston. Maybe you've read about him in the news in Utah. And he takes the terrible decision. He twists himself to break the bones in his arm with no anesthetic. And then after the bones were broken in his arm, he took out the knife that wasn't able to cut his skin before, and he managed to hack off his arm. Took an hour or two. Then he walked six miles out to the road where he found himself some of the tourists, and they took him out there. The point is, the hardest thing, he saved and did it last. It's like, I don't want to cut my arm off. Let me try and move the rock. Let me try and, uh, uh, you know, cut the rock away. Let me try everything except having to cut my arm off. When Jesus came to Gethsemane, it's like he looked there. It's like, is there any way? Is there any way around this? Is it possible? And it go, the text goes on, and it says, let this cup pass from me. See, the cup that Jesus was asking to pass from him was two things. It was the cup of suffering. Jesus was about to go through an experience of suffering unlike anyone has seen before or since. In fact, Ellen White says that no criminal was ever treated as bad as he. That cup of suffering, the pain and the agony, he looked at that and he said, no. Is it possible? The other thing in the cup that he saw was this cup of death the cup of eternal separation from his heavenly father. And when he looked at that and saw what it was, that deep, black, and dark hole of death, he said, no. Is there any other way? You see, part of the problem that we have today with sin, I believe, our love affair with sin, is because we really don't understand what death is. Jesus saw what death was, and in that moment of seeing what death was, he says, is there any way around this? Is there any way around it? Is there any way around this problem? Friends, if we can get a glimpse of what it was, too often we have a misunderstanding of God's goodness that leads us to misunderstand His wrath. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be scared into following God, amen? But all too often we misunderstand His goodness, forgetting that the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And we misunderstand His goodness, and we see evil people prospering, and we think, oh, well, God's not too serious about what He says about sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he saw death right in front of him. And he said, is it possible? Is there any other way I can get around this? Now, he knew that it wasn't. He knew that it wasn't. But he wanted to be spared its wrath. You know, in John chapter 12 and verse 27, in John 12 and verse 27, there's a very similar verse to this one where the Bible says, Father, John 12, 27, if you're there, turn in your Bibles, John 12, verse 27, the Bible says, 
Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this world. It's a very similar verse to Matthew 26. John says, Father, save me from this hour, but this is the reason I came into the world. Matthew says, is it possible, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, both of these two verses, they have in them what we would call a conjunctive adverb. A conjunctive adverb. The word but and the word nevertheless. You see, the, the verse in Matthew 26, if you turn back there, Matthew 26, that verse is hinged on that one word, nevertheless. See, a similar word to this could be something like nonetheless. It could be however. Now, a conjunctive adverb their function in a sentence is to do this. It's to connect two independent thoughts or clauses together. Now, an adverb, you know, looks at a word. But a conjunctive adverb, it looks at two sentences that could be two complete, separate, independent thoughts, and it puts them together. And depending on the adverb in the middle, whether it's one that compares, whether it's one that contrasts, or whether it's one that emphasizes, the sentence has different reading. Now, this word here is nevertheless. Nevertheless is more formal and it's more emphatic than the one we more often use, which is however. It's not too often that you and I, in our daily conversation, use the word nevertheless, because it's very, very emphatic. Most of the time, we would say however. And, the, and what these, this conjunctive adverb nevertheless or however does is this. It compares two sentences and it puts, listen carefully, more emphasis in the second sentence or the second half of the sentence than the first half of the sentence. More emphasis in which part? the second half as opposed to the first half. So as we read the sentence, oh Father, is it possible, let this cup pass from me. Now that can stand alone as a sentence. Then it says, nevertheless. And he goes on and says, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So the more important emphasis is that it's not what I want, but it's what you want. Even though I don't want it, I will be willing to do this because you want it. You know, in daily conversation, we, we may use these words in different ways. For example, we could say something here at GYC, we could say something like, the food at GYC is not exactly gourmet. Now that can stand alone as a sentence. However, use the wrong word, the food at GYC is not exactly gourmet. Nevertheless, I will be thankful, I will be happy, and I will not complain, amen? So the more important thing is that you're not going to complain, you're going to be thankful, and you're going to enjoy, as best you can, the food here, as opposed to talking about its various tastes. You see, it signifies the second half of the sentence is more important than the first half. Too often, though, in our prayers, listen carefully, too often in our prayers, in our communication and relationship with God, our experience is that the second half of the sentence holds less weight than the first half of the sentence. We tell God what we want. We tell God everything that he already knows. And then at the very end, we might just tack on like the spare wheel on the back of the car. Yeah, but whatever your will is, God. 
We tell God what career we've chosen. We tell God where we're going to study. We tell him what we're going to study. And then we say, oh, Lord, please guide me. We tell God who we're going to marry. We tell God why we're going to marry them. We give him all the list of reasons that he already knows. And then we say, oh, but, but please guide me. Give me your will. You know, two weeks ago, I got an email from my grandmother-in-law. My wife's grandmother. She's 98 years old. Fit, healthy, and strong. And she has an email address. <laughs> now, when 98-year-old grandmother-in-laws say anything, you pay attention. When they send me a personal email, I take, it, I, I take attention. I told my wife, hey, look, your grandmother wrote to me. So I start to read the email. What does my grandmother-in-law say? She says, I understand you're coming to see us in California soon. I have spoken to the head elder of the church, and he would like you to preach. The email went on to say, I have spoken to both the pastors of the church. They also would like you to preach. Then she said a few other things, and then she said these words. She said, please respond to this email with a yes. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Please respond with a yes. Needless to say, I responded with a yes. When your grandmother-in-law, who's 98 years old, writes to you and says, please respond with a yes, you're like, okay, I'll respond with a yes. Now, I'm about one-third of her age, just a bit more. It's okay in human sermon for her to tell me, listen, I'd like you to, one, the pastors would like you to preach, and please say yes. Imagine if the, foot, the shoe was on the other foot, so to speak, and I am writing her an email telling her what to do. Yeah, I know you're 98 years old, fit, healthy, and strong, but listen, you need to do this, 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 and this, and this. It will be seen as utter disrespect. And yet all too often in our relationship with God, we're like myself, in a sense, God is up there, and we're telling, yeah, God, you know, can you do this? And, and by the way, please say yes. And I'm only saying please because I'm being polite. Really, I'm saying say yes. Nevertheless, in our prayers, stands there and signifies that we're surrendering our will to God as opposed to us telling God what to do. It's paramount in our lives that in our prayer life that we recognize the second half of the sentence is more important than the first half and that we're willing to submit, we're willing to surrender whatever it might be to God and claim His victory because we come to God with our prayers and all too often we tell God and we don't claim the power and the strength that is found at the cross. See, when Jesus came to the cross, He was willing to surrender and submit Himself as He came to the cross. How is it with us? How is it with us? Do we say to God, we should say to God, Lord, I have chosen this career. I know it's only because I want the comfortable life and wage packet that this career brings. Nevertheless, I know God wants me to change now, and I'm willing to change. I have chosen to marry this person. Nevertheless, I know the Holy Spirit is tugging my heart that it's not the person I should marry. And even though I have set a date... I'll change. 
I have decided not to go into ministry due to my family pressure. My mom, my dad, they tell me don't go to ministry, be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, or something else. I decided not to go into ministry, even though God is calling me. Nevertheless, I will risk my family's displeasure and go into ministry because I know it's the path that God has for me. I do not like the person I am married to. In fact, I hate them. Nevertheless, I recognize I vow till death do us part. I am addicted. I am addicted to sex, and I am not married. Nevertheless, I will claim God's victory on my behalf. I feel attractions to the same sex. Nevertheless, I claim God's power to give me victory and to keep those things under subjection. I don't value my body. I want to harm my body. Nevertheless, I will take hold of the promise that I am valuable in the sight of God. I enjoy this secret sin. No one else knows about it. Nevertheless, I will claim the promise that God is able to give me victory over every secret sin that I, that, 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 let me lay it aside. I have dreams and desires. I could be the first one in my family to have a master's or a PhD. My parents, my uncles, my grandparents, none of them have it. I could be the first in my family. Nevertheless, I recognize God is calling me to drop it now and go to the mission field. I'm addicted to watching pornography. on my smartphone. Only I have the fingerprint to open it so no one can check my history. Only I have the four-digit code. No one else can check it. No one knows. Nevertheless, I know it's destroying my character, changing my view of the operate sex, eroding my morals, and I will, and I know God is able to deliver me. And I'll get rid of my smartphone and get a dumb phone too to take the temptation away. I like sin. Nevertheless, I want to love righteousness. I like enjoying the pleasures of sin. Nevertheless, I want to enjoy purity. You see, the way that's phrased, we're giving God power, uh, ability to be victorious on our behalf. Jesus went on to say, let's go back to Matthew 26. Jesus went on to say, Matthew 26, he went on to say, nevertheless, he said, not as I will, but as what? But let your will be done. He said, nevertheless, not as I will. Now, this passage has always given me some kind of, you know, isn't the will of God and the will of Jesus the same? Don't we teach that Jesus and God, while different persons, are the same in thought, purpose, character, desires, and motives? Jesus and his Father were on. John says it, in John 4, verse 34, and John 5, verse 30, where Jesus says, I seek not mine own will, it matches here, but the will of him who what? Sent me. You see, when Jesus said, not as I will, I believe this was the humanity of Jesus speaking through. Where Jesus came down here onto earth, he took on him the form of man. He took on him the character of man. He took on human nature that had been degraded by 4,000 years of sin, and he took this on so you and I can identify with him, and so he can identify with us. Hebrews says, 
that he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus had the same struggles you and I had, and even more, when he said, not as I will. Not as I will. See, too often when we come to God, we don't put the emphasis on the second half of the sentence. The main point of Jesus was not his personal will to preserve his life without pain and suffering, but it was the Father's will in the plan of salvation, which, how is it with us? When we pray to God in the mundane situations of life, See, all too often we pray for God's will only when we get to a crisis. Jesus had a connection with his Father throughout all the mundane situations of life. So when he got to Calvary, it was no big deal when he said, not my will but yours be done. I mean, it, it obviously was a big deal, but it wasn't like it was a change of character for him. It wasn't like it was out of character. See, Jesus, every day of his life, asked what the Father's will is. When he woke up in the morning, what shall I wear? When he was thinking about spending money, what shall I spend my money on? When he thought about where shall I go, God was guiding him. All too often in our lives, though, we separate the natural from the supernatural. And so we can handle the natural world. We can handle where we work. We can handle where we study. We can handle all these other things. And only if a crisis happens do we come to God. We don't pray to God all semester long. And when we come to exams, God, guide me. Now, God may be merciful and he may get you through that. But God wants to be with you there all the way along. We don't pray to God, Lord, guide me how to spend my money when I go to the shopping mall. No, we just spend our money how we want. And when we get into debt, we don't want God to release us. Crisis. God says, no, I want to be in every aspect of your life. I want to be in the small and, uh, and, and the little things. Jesus went on to pray, not as I will, but as what? You will. See, in, Matthew, in John 18 and verse 11, the Bible says, I'll just quote it. You can check it out later on. The Bible says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? See, the cup of death and sin, Jesus was willing to take. The will of God was the most important thing, and he was willing to surrender to it. You see, Jesus had total submission to his Father. And in total submission, first of all, there has to be the desire and the willingness to be obedient to God. He was willing to be obedient, and he submits Sometime in our relationship with God, when we said, not as I will, but as you will, we don't have that desire, that willingness to surrender, and we don't even have the desire to be obedient either. The two of them go hand in hand. When, 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 when Jesus surrendered, he had total submission to his Father's will. Today, the theme of the day is total submission in the context of the cross. See, a key aspect of Christ's attitude was his willingness to complete what he had started, to be obedient to the task at hand. And one of the key questions for us in the question of submission is, are we willing to be obedient to what God's will is? You may have heard the story. A little boy is sitting on a stool, and his mom told him, you've got to sit there because you've been a naughty boy. And after he sits there for a few minutes, he says to his mom, he says, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up inside. Too often our obedience, quote-unquote, to God is often like that. We may externally uh, comply, but internally we are not really submitting everything to the Father. We're not submitting all of who we are to God. You see, today we are called to deny ourselves 
And listen, one of the motivating factors in denying ourselves that we have given to us in the Bible is you deny yourself because Jesus denied for you. Make sense? Jesus denied for you, so you deny for him. And the way it often goes, the way it goes is this. You deny what's bad. You deny yourself what's bad so you can gain what is good. Deny yourself sin, and you can gain heaven. Deny yourself all these terrible things down here, and you can gain eternity with God. Deny what's bad so you can gain back what's good. When Jesus was denying himself, he was not denying anything that was bad to gain what was good. It was the reverse with Jesus. He was denying what was good because of what was bad. He denied a place in heaven because of sin. It's different to the denial that God calls us to deny. In many ways, Jesus' denial was like a level 10. I'm denying eternity because the wages of sin is death. We, though, are just called to deny what's bad so we can get back what is good. It's almost like the diet version of self-denial. Now, I'm not negating there's many, many big things here that God is calling you, you may to deny this week. Things that have a hold on you that you just can't let go. What I'm trying to say is that the self-denial Jesus went through, though the same, in many ways was slightly different. He denied what was good. He denied what was good to get something bad. It's kind of like when you are buying something that you don't need. Can anyone relate to this? You buy something you don't need, and you don't use it properly, and a few months or years later, you finally come around to the point where you sell it on eBay or something, and you sell it for a fraction of the cost that you bought it for. It does not give you a good feeling. eBay only is a good feeling when you buy it for a low price and sell it for a higher price, and you say, praise the Lord. You know, one time, a few years ago, I bought myself a boat. You're probably looking at me wondering, why did he buy a boat? Well, I don't know either. The way I try to explain it is, I think I had a midlife crisis early when I was 30 years old. It's supposed to be 40 or 50, but I think I had mine early. I've got, I had mine already. So when I'm 30, I go and buy a boat for who knows what reason. I had all these dreams of driving this boat and being you know, an accomplished water skier or wakeboarder or whatever, so I buy myself a boat. Only used it twice once in Wales, and we took it on a youth trip down to Croatia, to the Adriatic Sea, and we used it down there, had a great time. Anyway, the boat broke down in 2008. Brought it back to England, finally got it fixed after five years. My uncle, who's a mechanic, fixed it, and when your uncle, who the mechanic, fixes it for you for free, you can't push him. And if he wants to take five years, then he has to take five years. And the end of fixing it after five years, it looked very good. He had done a very good job. The engine was nice. He had re, re, you know, rebuilt it, whatever. So I put it back on eBay to sell it. For the same price, I bought it and some. Boat doesn't sell. I lower the price by a few hundred pounds. Boat doesn't sell. I lower it again by a few hundred pounds. Boat doesn't sell. I lower it again by a few hundred pounds. Boat doesn't sell. I lower it now to half the original price. Boat doesn't sell. I won't even tell you what I bought it for and what I sold it for. It's too painful for me to still say it. 
I'm now thankful I have a very good wife who's very patient with me, but is also there for me now that I'm married to stop me doing such silly things again. Needless to say, I believe it encapsulates a little bit. Jesus gave up something good and got back crumbs in return. But God calls us to deny something that is bad in order that we can get something good back. He calls us to live a life of self-denial, to deny something. What is God calling you to deny today, here, while you are here at GYC? See, people talk about sacrifice. Jesus gave up something good to get something bad. But my question to you this morning is, what is God calling you that is bad to give up in order to get back something that's good? What is that nevertheless in your life this morning that God is calling you to say, yeah, I know that. Nevertheless, I will give you power here to give you victory. What is holding you down with seemingly unbreakable chains? Maybe you are struggling with pride that's so deadly of sin that we cloak and hide away. That sin that we hide under words like, I want to be the best for God. I want to be all I can be for God. God calls us to be the head and not the tail. And we cloak it in things like that. And while those words are true, we know in ourselves it's just pride. We just want to be the best for ourselves. And God calling you to surrender your pride. Maybe it's your ambition that God is calling you to surrender today. Maybe you've always dreamed of being certain career in your life, and God is calling you to lay that aside. Maybe it's your dream to be a pastor. Maybe it's even your dream to be a doctor. Maybe it's ambition that drives you in this world from day to day. Each day, ambition drives you. It drives you. It drives you. You have earthly ambition, but you know not yet what a heavenly ambition is. Maybe you've been elected to a position of leadership in your church or your community or your youth group, and the only reason why you've been elected to a position of leadership is because you drive a nice car and you have, a, a, you know, seem to do well in life successfully. And yet you still don't know what spiritual ambition is. You're bankrupt. And you want to say to God, nevertheless, even though I have these ambitions I'm struggling with, I want your power in my life to give me heavenly ambition. Turning your Bible to Luke chapter 5 and verse 5. It's our last text that we're going to look at this morning. Luke chapter 5 and verse 5. And there in Luke chapter 5 and verse 5, we have a verse that kind of sums up and encapsulates what we have been looking at today. Luke chapter 5 and verse 5. What is God calling you to surrender today? What is God calling you to submit today? Luke chapter 5 and verse 5. The Bible says, And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all what? We have toiled all night. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. He says to Jesus, look, we've worked all night. We are fishermen. We have toiled. All. I like the word there, toiled. We have toiled all night. How many of you this morning, you feel that in your relationship with God, as you're struggling with something, as you've come here to GYC, that there's something that you have toiled all night against? You're struggling against some sin. You're struggling against some vice. You're struggling against some addiction. Addiction that's holding you down. A vice that's holding you down. Addiction 
to wasting your hours and hours and hours on the internet. Addiction to scrolling your Facebook and Twitter and Instagram timeline over and over and over again. Addicted to pornography, to sex, to whatever it may be. Addicted to pride. Addicted. And you can't let it go. But you want to say to God, Lord, today I have toiled all night. I have struggled with this thing over and over and over again. I went forward for an appeal at last year's GYC, but it still didn't work for me. I've toiled with this one. And you want to say this morning, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down my net on the other side. The emphasis is on, at your word, I will let down my net. The emphasis is not that we have toiled all night. The emphasis is not that you have struggled for one week, for one month, for one year, for one decade, for two decades with this sin. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, at your word, we will let down the net. And this morning you want to say to God, Lord, at your word, I want to let down my net on this side. This morning, this morning, before we come to a close, before we, you go your various ways to workshops, I want to make a quick appeal as we come to a close. It's not for everyone. The appeal this morning is this. Are you struggling with some vice that's holding you captive? Is there some secret sin that no one else knows about in your family, your church, or anyone knows about? The one that you just enjoy. Do you have some addiction that you are struggling with? Is there some poisonous attitude that you have in your heart to your fellow brethren? Vice, secret sin, addiction, poisonous attitude. And you want to say to God today, this morning, on New Year's Day, I want to lay these at the foot of the cross. I've toiled all night with these. Nevertheless, I want to take your word and believe in your grace and your power and your victory in my life to give me strength. Too often I've been talking on that side, but today I want to say, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down my net on this side. This morning, if you feel the Holy Spirit pricking your heart, and there's a sign to heaven, to yourself, to whoever may be here, you just want to say, Lord, give me strength, give me victory. I'm tired of toiling on that side. I want victory on this side. I'm not naming anything specific, but there's something, vice, secret sin, addiction, poisonous attitude that's holding you down. You want to surrender it this morning. If that's your desire, I want to invite you to come to the front before we close with a word of prayer. Come quickly. We don't have too long. surrender to God. Say, I've been toiling over there, but now I want victory over here. I'm tired. I'm tired of fishing on that side. I want victory over here. I want victory over here. Lord, grant me victory. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Keep coming. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 
Lord, as the people still come and those who have come, Lord, you know what it may be, what it is, that those who have come forward to the front or into the aisles are struggling with. Lord, you know what's holding them down. You know what they have prayed about before and and they've asked for your will to be done, but it's not with the strength of conviction in really believing that the power is there. Lord, you know what these people have been toiling with, what secret sin or addiction or bad attitude that is holding them down. Lord, I pray this morning that you would attend to the earnest plea of their hearts. That this morning that you would read their hearts as you know us best. You would see their desires. And as they say to you today, nevertheless, at your word, I let down my net into the endless well of your grace and power. Lord, grant strength where we are weak. Grant victory, we pray. May your spirit, Lord, tabernacle with us as we go our various ways. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.